Welcome to Hill Country Institute Live, Exploring Christ and Culture, the program that puts you in touch with Christian leaders who are actively working on key issues of faith and culture. I'm Larry Lenenschmidt, your host, and we are delighted you were with us today. Our guests include thought leaders, authors, ministry leaders, and pastors working on fighting human trafficking, environmental stewardship, creating art that glorifies God, missional efforts to take the gospel message into all of society in creative and relational ways, and much more. We invite you to visit our website, hillcountryinstitute.org, to listen to podcasts of previous programs and recordings from our conferences on Christ and culture issues, including faith and art, faith and science, the works of C.S. Lewis, and more. That's hillcountryinstitute.org. And we also ask you to consider supporting this ministry because the radio program actually costs money as we pay the radio station. So thanks for your consideration for support. We're very pleased to welcome our special guest today, Dr. Hugh Ross. Dr. Ross is the founder and president of Reasons to Believe, a Christian apologetics ministry focused on research, development, and proclaiming Jesus Christ as Creator, Lord, and Savior. Dr. Ross earned his Ph.D. at the University of Toronto and was a postdoc fellow at the California Institute of Technology for five years. He began Reasons to Believe in 1986. Dr. Hugh Ross, welcome to Hill Country Institute Live. We're so glad you can be with us today. Well, my pleasure. Yeah, I'm not sure people really know much about your background. Would you tell us about your family and your educational background and maybe what attracted you to science in the first place? I was born and raised and educated in Canada. And uh, I got into astronomy when I was seven years of age, became addicted to it, actually, and Mm -hmm. haven't lost the addiction. So, (laughs) and I was, uh, I was raised in a family, uh, you know, they weren't Christian, they were moral, but not Christian. Mm -hmm. In fact, I really didn't get to know to any degree of depth a Christian until I showed up on the Caltech campus at age 27. Uh, But I became a Christian through my astronomy. My astronomy persuaded me there had to be a God that's responsible for the universe, and I began to look at the world's philosophers to see if they could help mm-hmm. me, mm-hmm. and discovered that they had the cosmological facts wrong. So then I began to go through the world's holy books, and uh, eventually I picked up a Bible, and uh, I, it was a Gideon Bible. Mm-hmm. I did see two Christians from 30 feet away when I was 11, and uh, they were handing out Bibles in our, in our public school. So uh, I'm a Gideon convert, uh, but it took me two years of studying that Bible for me to realize, number one, it's free of errors and contradictions. And number two, it consistently predicts with accuracy future scientific discoveries. And that's what persuaded me this has to be the inspired word of the one that actually did the deed. And so at age 19, I signed my name in the back of a Gideon Bible, giving my life to Christ. I began to share my faith with students and uh, professors at the universities where I was studying. And it was at Caltech that I really got to know Christians uh, in a serious way for the first time. Was there a Christian group in the Caltech uh, when you were there? You were a postdoc at Caltech? I was a postdoc at Caltech, and uh, a number of the faculty at Caltech Mm -hmm. were Christians. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it was meeting a Christian there, and he said, you know, Hugh, I see you're very uh, uh, good at sharing your faith with scientists. Because, you know, I'd led some of the scientists there to the Lord, including a rather aggressive atheist. (laughs) And he said, you know, you need to think about sharing your faith with non-scientists. So I says, well, Dave, where do you find these (laughs) non-scientists? And he said, walk off the Caltech campus. So I did that and started to engage strangers. And, you know, literally right on the street, they were giving their lives to Christ. Most people aren't aware 
of how strong and extensive the scientific evidences are for the God of the Bible. So just sharing that with people uh, was sufficient for them to say, you know, tell me what I need to do with my life. Sure. So so you you became an apologist without really the formal training that an apologist might have today or that's even available to us like using reason to believe resources. Well, part of that was my conversion experience, realizing if I go public with my commitment to Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. I'm going to be asked questions. And so mm-hmm. even before I signed my name in that Gideon Bible, I said I need to be prepared for what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So I did some fairly extensive study, just, you know, what is it going to take for me to be effective in reaching my fellow uh, students and professors uh, with the good news of Jesus Christ? Then, and then as I began to practice it, you know, people would say, well, what about this? What about that? And so that's kind of how I trained myself in apologetics. Sure. Just being able to answer the questions that I was getting from other scientists. So kind of a reverse Socratic method. Correct. You, you, were, the, you were on the other end. And being asked the questions, in a right, sense. Yeah. Right, right. Well, I, I would keep saying, well, you know, I don't have an answer for that, but let me get back to you. And then I would study it and go back to them, and they say, oh, I, well, I got another question. <laughs> and we, sh- we should all be comfortable with that, shouldn't we? Because if you're asked a question and you don't have an answer, and you, and you say, well, let's get together next week. You see what you can find. I'll see what I can find. And then we come back together. Isn't that a good way to build relationship and do apologetics? It's a very good way. Yeah. It's also consistent with First Peter 3.15. Mm-hmm. Always be ready with good reasons for the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. And it's talking about those reasons. It's not your reasons. It's the reasons that the people need that you're sharing your faith with. Mm-hmm. And how do you find out? You listen to them. Mm-hmm. So you had you you had gone through your 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 educational background. You had done your undergraduate, I think, at the University of British Columbia. And, Correct. And then your PhD in, in uh, Toronto. University of Toronto. Then I went to Caltech for postdoctoral research. So you spent about five years doing postdoctoral research. Right. And then you were beginning to do apologetics. So how did how did the organization Reasons to Believe come into this chronology? Well, while I was at Caltech, uh, people at the church I was attending and where I was training people how to do evangelism by mm-hmm. this means – they found out that I was under a J-1 visa, which meant I had to leave after three years. Mm -hmm. So when they found out I was planning to go to Europe or back to Canada, they said, what would it take to get you to stay? And they basically offered me a pastoral position on the church. I says, well, for that to work, you got to get me an H-1 visa, which meant I was taking a position no Mm -hmm. American could fulfill. But they said, you know, given your knowledge of the Bible and uh, your uh, theology— and the fact that you're using this high-level science to bring people of faith in Christ, we think we can create a position. Mm-hmm. However, the INS demanded proof that I was actually doing this before I applied. But I had already written a lot of booklets and papers, so I got the visa and wound up taking the position at the church. And after serving in that capacity for a number of years, the leaders of the church said, we need to take this worldwide. We want to help you start an organization. Mm-hmm. So it was a church near Caltech that worked with me to launch Reasons to Believe. So when a, when a church has something special going on and they can birth a ministry, it's, it's just an extension of the body of Christ, isn't it? It is, and yeah. the church where I still serve as a pastor, they have launched several ministries. Mm-hmm. Ours is only one of several that they have launched. Yeah, well, this, this area of Austin, San Antonio, the area that we serve, there's a lot of really creative people and creativity in the arts, creativity and technology, and, and, it's, and it's good to hear that, that there's that kind of, if you will, entrepreneurship and support 
for things that people are called to do. That's so, what the church is all about. I don't understand yeah. why more churches don't do this. Yeah. It's just being missional, isn't it? It is. Yeah. The word that, that, that everybody's trying to define now. But basically, I think being missional just means finding what God's doing and going with, going with him and doing that. And, and you're preparing people to share the message in a unique and, and deep way. Right. Basically, what I did at the church is just show people how you can go literally door to door, talk to people, mm-hmm. talk to people in the right way, answer their questions, don't try to preach to them, mm-hmm. and watch what the Holy Spirit does. And we would see people literally every Saturday give their lives to Christ. Wow. In fact, we wound up planting a church just based on the evangelism we were doing. That's incredible. So, so how would what would you like for people to know about Reasons to Believe? Well, Reasons to Believe is a group of research scientists that, I mean, we're basically an evangelistic organization where our scientific team examines the book of nature. God gave us two books, the book of nature and the book of scripture. And we're told in the Bible to go to the book of scripture to develop evidences for the book of scripture. So that's what we do. We look at the emerging discoveries on the frontiers of science to develop brand new evidences for the truth of the Bible and the truth of the Christian faith, then equip people how to use those to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. So you you have a, a website with resources. You have books that you've written. How, do, right. how would people find more if they're interested in finding out more about Reasons to Believe? Well, we've written 20 books on these new reasons to believe, and the website is reasons.org. And yeah, there's material there for people who are brand new to this kind of content. There's also material for people who have been studying this for decades. So, and the and the authors of the books you know, are, are the people on your staff. So, there's books by Hugh Ross. There's books by Fuzz. Yeah, who tell us about the authors so that people, if they're interested, can track those books down. Well, Fazal Rana is our staff biochemist. Uh, we got a lady by the name of A.J. Roberts, who's a virologist. Uh, mm-hmm. We have uh, Jeff Zwerink, like me, he's an astrophysicist. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a philosopher, a theologian, Ken Samples. We got another physicist, uh, Dave Rogstad. And so we write books, but also we have a team of associate uh, scientists and scholars that work with us that assist us in writing books, and some of them are writing books on their own. But the whole theme is new reasons to believe, new tools to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ, kind of the principle Paul used when he went into Athens. Mm-hmm. This was a city where there was no uh, Christian influence at all. And what did uh, Paul do? He went to the leaders and engaged them on the latest ideas. And what we've discovered is it's easier to engage people with something that was discovered 48 hours ago and use that as a bridge to something that happened 2,000 years ago. Sure. So, you know, talk to people where they're itching and use that as a way to show them, hey, this is evidence for the God of the Bible. This shows that the Bible is true, mm-hmm. and you need to seriously <coughs> excuse me, look at the truth claims of Scripture. And yeah, I mean, we've seen people in all walks of life come to Christ uh, through that approach. Yeah, excellent. Well, there's even a C.S. Lewis uh, connection in there, where a lot of our friends are big C.S. Lewis fans, and your philosopher theologian is, is, is writing on Lewis uh, quite a bit, isn't he? He's writing a book right now on the, the great thinkers of which C.S. Lewis is one of them. Yeah, yeah. sure. I know he spoke uh, spoke here in Austin once on, on right. Lewis, and we really really enjoyed that. Well, when okay, so if they want to find out uh, and go to your website, what what is your website? Reasons.org. dot org. Okay. Uh, they can also call us. I mean, we got an address and a phone number, but uh, Reasons.org dot org is one of the deepest websites you'll ever see. Okay, you know, and 
you also have chapters around the country where where people who are interested in, in learning more about apologetics get together, don't you? Yeah, there's more than 50 chapters in North America. And so there's one here in Austin, for example, where okay. our people get together and work out, you know, what can we do to reach out to the community? What can we do to better equip one another? Mm-hmm. And we provide a lot of training resources uh, for our different chapters. And if someone wants to start a local chapter, say in San Antonio, they can, they do can that. contact you and, right. and you've got the resources to help them do that. Right. So uh, we, we really, at Hill Country Institute, we really value what the work that Reasons to Believe does. And we really strongly uh, suggest that if you're interested in apologetics, if you're interested in trying to put this faith and science thing together, uh, visit, visit reasons.org and uh, read Hugh's book. And we'll be talking a little bit more about, about Hugh Ross's books as we go. That ties in really to um, one, one of the ideas, one of the issues in the body of Christ in terms of how we get along is how we consider faith and science. Uh, there, are, there are really about four big views, if you will, or four approaches. There's the old earth creationist, there's the young earth creationist, there's intelligent design and theistic evolution. Um, now, there, there's variations within each of those and, right. and, and a lot of different wrinkles, if you will. But in general, what, what do each of those propose and how does reasons to believe relate to those different beliefs? Well, good question. Uh, theistic evolutionists uh, would believe that uh, you know the universe and the Earth are billions of years old. Life has been here for billions of years. Uh, they see God as responsible for creating the universe. They see that as a miraculous event. When it comes to the history of life, they believe that God directs the evolution, but he directs it through things like controlling the uh, mutation rate, uh, the natural selection and the gene exchange. <laughs> and so it's directed in a way that scientists can't tell the difference from, say, a non-theistic pathway. So this is why a lot of scientists have looked at this and said, we don't really see this as relevant to the history of life because it's not a distinct model. So if God is there, he's 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 so indiscreet that he's not apparent? Is, is that really a well, part of what some is There's a group called evolutionary creationists that uh, okay. would also say, you know, well, yeah, uh, life evolves here on planet Earth through common descent. Um, some theistic evolutions would say it's common descent where God basically sets up everything up in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Evolutionary creationists would say God directs the evolution. But in both cases, there's really no difference from what you would see from a non-theistic perspective in terms of what you see in the science. However, um, many of my friends who are evolutionary creations would say, we're not saying that won't happen. We think as science advances, there may be ways to distinguish. But they, they claim right now that's, that's not the case. And that's where we would differ with them. We think there actually are scientific tools existing today that give you a very different interpretation of the origin and history of life than what you get, say, from a deistic or a non-theistic perspective. Mm-hmm. So that's theistic evolution, evolutionary creation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also have um, young earth creation, which basically looks at the first chapter of the Bible and says these creation days are six consecutive 24-hour periods. And they also believe that uh, there isn't any time span between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-3. They look at Genesis 1-1 as a summary for the whole chapter. And that's where they come up with the idea that uh, the creation, the universe, is only thousands of years old. The earth is only thousands of years old. Now, there's some debate within the young earth community as to whether it's 4,004 B.C., 
when God creates the universe, or it might be a few thousand years earlier than that. But about the limit is 10,000 years. Yeah, how you do the genealogies, etc. Right, <laughs> yeah. Uh, then you've got uh, what you would call um, intelligent design, which basically says we need to unite together and take down the monster of Darwinian evolution. And once we've taken down that monster, then we can discuss the theological differences that we have and what do we think about the time scale issue. <laughs> and so they're arguing for an undefined intelligent designer. They're persuaded that the court cases on uh, creation and evolution that have been fought over the past 20 years no longer give us the right to identify Jesus Christ as a designer. So in order to make it non-religious, they just say an intelligent designer. And they're, they're also, most of them are agnostic on the age of the universe and the earth. They're trying to avoid uh, going down that path. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's people like us, uh, old earth creationists. In fact, uh, we're more specific. We're day age creationists. We believe that the creation days in Genesis 1 are consecutive and non-overlapping, but that each creation day is a long period of time. Based on the fact that the Hebrew word for day, yom, has four distinct literal definitions one of which includes a long but finite period of time. So that's our position, mm-hmm. six consecutive long periods of time. But unlike, say, what you get in the uh, evolutionary creation camp or the theistic evolution camp, we believe the origin of life is a supernatural event, it's a miracle, and that when God brings life upon the face of the earth, these are miraculous interventions. And so, And we would believe that all of humanity is descended from Adam and Eve, whom God specially created a few tens of thousands of years ago. Whereas in theistic evolution, evolutionary creationism, uh, the origin of humanity is a large population, not mm-hmm. just two people. And they're convinced that the genetic evidence forces it to conclude we're looking at hundreds if not thousands of humans as part of the origin of humanity. And we're skeptical of the genetic evidence for good reason. It doesn't match the experimental evidence. And so our point is, if the experiments contradict the theory, something's either wrong with the experiments or the theory. And so we're persuaded that uh, the Bible is going to withstand the challenge, that indeed it will eventually establish we're all descended from one man, one woman, that God specially created. Well, okay, to contrast with a, a young earth creationist, you both, a young earth and an old earth creationist, both take the Bible very seriously. Right and and really, a, a theistic evolutionist or evolutionary creationist can too, but but there's a there there are different issues for a young Earth creationist. You have to say, well, science really isn't accurate, and therefore, in your testable model that we'll talk about, you're going to be looking for something that that confirms this ten thousand year or so age of the Earth. In a theistic evolution model, you have the the need to somehow explain Adam and Eve. So either they came from other beings and God did something with them to to turn them into being made in his image or they, you have to go back to your model and say well they were made ex nihilo well so, for example younger creationists and uh, people like us day age creationists mm-hmm. uh, we take the bible literally unless the context clearly indicates otherwise whereas theistic evolutionists and evolutionary creationists are quite comfortable taking passages like Romans and Genesis in a very figurative sense because they're committed to maintain consistency with mainstream science. 
Whereas I think you've identified it well in the Young Earth camp, they're very suspicious of the scientific claims, but they're not going to give way on the Bible. Our position is that you can maintain faith to both the Bible and to the science as they're both literally interpreted. And so, and what we're trying to do is integrate across the scientific disciplines. When we engage theistic evolutionists, we say that, you know, we think one of your problems is you're over-specialized. Yeah. You're not looking at the whole scientific picture. And likewise, when we engage younger creations, we say, we think you're hyper-specialized. You're only looking at a few passages of the Bible. It's 66 books. We not only need to take the Bible literally, we need to take it literally and consistently. Well, you, your your approach. You you mentioned the two books earlier, and I think that's a that's a critical point because if you if you only emphasize the Bible, you can ignore what you see, if you will, and if you only work with what you see or test or whatever, then you can ignore Scripture. And you're really trying to put these two together in a way that honors Scripture and honors our capacity for reason. Correct. And that's not new. That's the very base of the Reformation. So, Mm -hmm. for example, you'll see in the Belgic Confession, 1561, Article 2, that God has given us two books and that God reliably reveals himself in an utterly trustworthy way in both the book of nature and the book of Scripture. And if you see a conflict, you know you've made a mistake in your theology or you've made a mistake in your science. And I often will tell audiences, theology is not the same as the book of Scripture. It's our interpretation of the book of Scripture. And science is not the same as the record of nature. It's our interpretation of the record of nature. And when we see an apparent conflict, we know we've made a mistake in either the science or the theology, and in some cases both. Because there should be an integrated whole. There should be an integrated whole. And a good example of that is, notice God gave us 66 books in giving us the book of Scripture. Mm -hmm. Why did he give us those 66 books instead of just one? So we can test one book against the other, because God's not going to contradict himself. Mm -hmm. Likewise, he's given us multiple disciplines of science. So if we see physics contradicting biology, we know we've made a mistake. Mm -hmm. I understand. So you have a view, and the BioLogos people have a view, and Young Earth Creationists have a view. Does someone have to have your view for you to have fellowship with them, for them to be considered part of the body of Christ? Not at all. In fact, I think one of the things that Christianity has got going for it, we tolerate differences. In fact, mm-hmm. Paul said it's good that there's differences amongst you. Uh, there are things where we must agree upon. There are certain essentials of the faith that are critical, which is why we develop doctrinal statements. Mm-hmm. But, for example, the age of the earth is not a salvation issue. So there's no need for that to be in a doctrinal statement. But there is a need for us to discuss our differences. But we're to discuss our differences in a loving way. I mean, it tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 that we are ambassadors for peace, calling an unbelieving world to make their peace with Jesus Christ. But non-Christians watch us. They watch how we deal with our differences with one another. And if they see that we can challenge one another with grace and humility and love, now they're going to be willing to trust us with their differences with respect to our belief system. But if they see us fighting one another in a vindictive way, they're going to say, forget those Christians. Mm -hmm. So it's really important how we deal with our differences with one another. And unfortunately, the science-faith issues is probably where you see the greatest vindictiveness and uh, differences between Christians. That needs to change. Yeah, that's sad. I, I love the quote, in essentials unity, in non-essentials freedom, in all things charity. 
Um, I've heard it attributed to different people. It seems to go back to about 1627, but it captures right. what you're saying, that at, at the core of who Jesus is, there is a God. It's a, it's a triune God. There are three persons. We needed to be redeemed. Jesus did the redemption, etc. That whole Christian package, we need to stand by that. But the age of the earth isn't something to break fellowship over, is it? It's not. However, yeah. there are people who consider the age of the earth to be a cardinal doctrinal issue. Mm-hmm. And I found with those folks it's very difficult to have a dialogue because basically they think their Christian faith hangs on their being right. Yeah. And that makes it difficult for a student when he gets to college, doesn't it, if he's been raised in that environment? Well, he's been raised in that environment where he sees it as a cardinal issue. If it's not, then there's the freedom. Okay, let's actually look at this and let's look at the whole yeah. revelation from God. And then there's a willingness to say, hey, if you can prove me wrong, uh, I'd be grateful. The kind of spirit of inquiry that Paul took to Mars Hill. Right. That's what we'd be looking for. Correct. Well, we're, we're drawing to the end of this segment, but um, let me ask you one question, and then we'll that'll set the stage for the next one. What is a testable model, and what is your testable model that you've set up for old earth creationism? Well, the biggest complaint I hear when I'm university campuses is that creation is not science, because it's not testable, it's not falsifiable, and it doesn't make predictions which is why when we launched Reasons to Believe 30 years ago, we built it on a testable biblical creation model. And we show people how it can be falsified, how it can be tested, and we're aggressive in making predictions based on our biblical model of what scientists should discover in the future. And our appeal is this, if our predictions come true and yours don't, you need to give a serious look at our model. And if our model offers a more comprehensive and harmonious explanation of the whole record of nature compared to your model, you need to give our model a serious look. And part of it is communicating to Christians. Non-Christians of a scientific bent are not going to abandon their Darwinian model until they see a superior model to take its place. That's one of my criticisms of the intelligent design movement. Hmm. Simply knocking down the Darwinian paradigm will not work. You have to show them an alternative and show them how that alternative is superior because scientists are going to hang on to their model no matter how flawed it is until they see an alternative that gives them a better explanation. And sometimes it's been written that it takes a generation for for a new model to to take hold in the scientific community. It can if the differences are slight, slight, but if the differences are Mm -hmm. big, it can happen faster. Mm -hmm. That's my critique of theistic evolution. We need to show a bigger difference. Mm -hmm. If your model is too similar to the one they already have, they're not going to be motivated to, to change their model. Well, we're with Dr. Hugh Ross of Reasons to Believe. If you'd like to learn more about their organization, their website is reasons.org. It's time for a brief break. Please stay with us. Hill Country Institute Live will return shortly. Hill Country Institute provides programs on key issues facing the body of Christ today in the area of faith and culture. Our website, hillcountryinstitute.org, has resources from past conferences and events on faith and science, faith and art, faith and work, and more, as well as podcasts of the radio program. If you would like to continue to hear this program and benefit from the online resources of the Hill Country Institute, we invite you to support us at hillcountryinstitute.org or call 512-680-7993. 512-680-7993. The radio stations like to be paid for the programs, so your help in continuing to stay on the air would be greatly appreciated. That's hillcountryinstitute.org. We'll be back shortly. Please stay with us. We'll be talking about more of the distinctives of how Reasons to Believe approaches faith and science. 